It's Wednesday, November the 1st, 2017. Happening now, this is the EdTech Situation Room, broadcasting to you from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I am Wes Fryer, the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School, joined as always by the incredibly insightful and, you know, deeply, um, I want to say something like researched and just, you know, full of cards of evidence to cite back up what he has to say, Jason Neifer. Jason, how is Montana tonight? Uh, Missoula, Montana has uh, freezing rain going on outside, which will turn to snow overnight tonight. And I think I can safely say that the Montana winter has safely hit Montana. So snow falling and, um, you know, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas maybe, but uh, it's it's certainly dumping here in Missoula. Um, here, I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And I'm also the tech savvy administrator in residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, um, where I like to talk about tech because it's cool. All right. And I have to ask as a, a point of personal privilege, Halloween, your exchange students first experience. What was that like? Um, we mostly have an answer in the door. Um, it's not a, it's apparently not part of the culture at the high school he's going to here in Missoula to have a lot of students dress up, um, which is interesting because my understanding is one of the other high schools in town, every student dresses up, uh, uh, hardcore. So I thought that was kind of interesting, but, um, you know, I am doing what I'm sure most people are doing the day after. I have, uh, leftover candy. That we're trying to get through tonight. It's an it's an almond joy. I'm going to get through only good candy at the Knife or James residence here in Montana, um, and then I'm pairing that tonight with a nice Trader Joe's Merlot. So for those of you curious about my wine, cheap candy pairing, that's what we're going with tonight. Only the finest culinary combinations here on the EdTech Situation Room for your, uh, I'm sure that's going to improve our uh, our dialogue considerably. Well, welcome to our live viewer who's there. I will actually be opening up our chat window on YouTube and we do invite anyone joining us live. There's somebody else who's joined in to please uh, chime in on the chat room and let us know who you are, where you're coming from and any questions and comments that you have. So you can find our links that we'll be talking about tonight as always at edtechsr.com slash links where there is an embedded Google document with, per usual, far more links than we will have time to talk about in a 60-minute time frame. You'll also find the archives uh, both on YouTube as well as our website, uh, downloadable from Amazon S3 as 360p, I think, videos that are about 200 megs for an hour. And that's actually pretty decent compression coming straight off of YouTube. And then also uh, 32 kilobit compressed audio versions. So, Jason, where would you like to begin tonight's dialogue as we look at technology news and look at it through an educational lens? Sure. Um, I'd like to start with an interesting, maybe kind of techie article that uh, I was pointing to. Uh, last week, that's pretty interesting. Um, this is from Marco.org. Marco Arment's a uh, uh, fairly uh, famous podcaster and developer that's developed a lot of interesting um, products, including being the lead, lead developer of Tumblr, um, the, the guy that created Instapaper. Um, he's been around for a while and certainly a, a welcome voice on the Internet of expertise. But he wrote a really interesting article that I wanted to point to that I believe I got from the Tech Thing podcast, if I remember correctly, but it's called The Impossible Dream of USB-C. And as it turns out, I was going to bring a USB-C device. I'm actually on one right now, and of course I can't put, you know, fold this around to point to the, the, the ports. But I want to talk about this for a second because I think that there is so much possibility in USB-C, and there is a 12-inch MacBook. 11, has, yeah, 11. 11-inch MacBook that has a USB-C port on it, and... um. Wes, you're plugging in, what is that, a... This, uh, in order to get the standard USB, because you can't plug it in, uh, yep. this is actually my HDMI video adapter, which I don't leave home without if I want to uh, plug in wired to a projector or a television. I also, you know, use Apple TV and, and wireless, but this is definitely made for more of a wireless experience, not as many connections. Right. And so for those of you unaware or have not purchased a device yet that has this wonderful innovation, USB-C is the successor to um, USB 2 and 3 and micro and uh, mini USB, which are interfaces that, uh, for example, uh, the, the, the micro USB is the core interface for most Android cell phones, at least it has been until very late. But the USB-C is, is the newer port in town. And slowly and surely, devices 
are coming out with USB-C ports. And Marco does an extraordinary job of explaining how that despite the possibility and powers of USB-C, it has not been the panacea that advocates have have talked about. And he mentions a lot of reasons why, but a couple of them. Um, first, um, a, a lot of manufacturers, including on the Chromebook I'm on right now, have taken USB-C and eliminated any other USB ports, which means that you're down uh, to just a USB-C or two port, which means that if you're going to plug in anything that's a more classical USB device, you need to buy, as Wes suggested before, a dongle to do so. Um, in a lot of cases, USB-C becomes the power for a device, and so you have to then sacrifice one of your ports for a peripheral uh, to power your device. Um, and there is really, despite the fact that the ports are shaped the same across all these devices, your USB-C port could or could not have functionality in it that makes your port that much more useful. For example, not all USB-C ports have video out functionality for them. Not all USB-C have power uh, uh, capabilities, which means that you could plug in a powered USB-C adapter and not be able to charge your device because either that port or none of the USB-C ports have power to them. Some of them are 3.0, some of them are 3.1, some of them are something referred to as Thunderbolt, which is a super fast USB-C standard, and the devices that only work in Thunderport, Thunderport, or Thunderbolt port, excuse me, Thunderbolt, uh, the Thunderbolt port, um, don't work in anything backwards compatible. So this dream of having one cable that does it all, or one or two or three ports that does it all, um, has not been the case yet. And the reason why this was so interesting to me personally is because I've been exploring the use of, 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 of my, my Chromebook, uh, which has two USB-C ports on it as a, um, a way to create a desktop utilizing a USB-C dock. Um, and there are, are dozens of docks available. The generic ones apparently work there, but I found a, um, a Dell makes a really beautiful Thunderbolt USB-C port that actually runs about 200 bucks, but uh, they're now starting to get used and refurbished pretty cheap on eBay. And last week I purchased one for $29, a used one, um, and it was delivered. And while it works with another laptop in our office that that is, is someone else, uh, another employee in my office's laptop as a port because it's a Thunderbolt Thunderbolt compatible USB, USB-C Dell laptop. It doesn't work at all, um, on, uh, on any of my Chromebooks that have USB-C ports on them because it's not Thunderbolt ports. So I wanted to mention this because I could see the lure of a school starting to move towards and standardize two devices that have USB-C, uh, ports on them because it simplifies charging. It simplifies um, uh, uh, dongles. You could have one style of dongle that you, is utilized across a number of devices, but unfortunately, it's just not to be the case. Um, and I'd mention one other thing about this. Um, this is an HP uh, 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 Chromebook that I'm on right now, and this is the USB-C charger that came with this um, a Chromebook. It, it looks like a traditional charger. It's hardy. It has a lot of watts and it's pretty sturdy, but you know, it's bulky, right? Like this looks like a laptop charger. It's inconveniently uh, um, uh, designed like a laptop charger, but I was able to go to eBay. Uh, I'm sorry, to Amazon and purchase a $20 little uh, USB-C brick and then buy a 10 foot cord for $11 and um, uh, that's that's now my carry-along charger. It's tiny. It's beautiful. It's much longer than the HP charge or HP charger, and it's it's really convenient. But even that, it puts you at peril because um, up until very recently, half or more of all the USB-C cables and chargers on Amazon were not up to standard. It could fry your device. Now, now Amazon's cracked down on that. But it's it's a really interesting phenomenon, I think, in the technology world. So, Wes, I know you have the the, the thin, beautiful uh, uh, MacBook, uh, the 12 inch MacBook. Um, what is I'm sorry, the 11 inch MacBook that I keep labeling 12 inch MacBook. Um, what what has your experience been as a USB C user? 
You know, I think it's been okay, but it's it's still too early days. It's a little bit like, um, you know, the first Macs that lost the floppy drive when you still kind of sort of needed it. Uh, Apple has always been there at the bleeding edge of technology. And so <clears throat> I think that it's it's amazing. It's light. You know, when I carry it around, people think I have an iPad, you know, not a laptop. But, for instance, I'm using my wife's MacBook Air to do the, the show. We've had a, a few issues, I think, related to actually the heat of the of the processor. And that's not as, just tied to the USB-C. But, you know, for, for my case, use case, where I'm typically taking this to meetings and uh, able to connect wirelessly to screens, it's worked okay. But, yep. you know, just, just like uh, for tonight, I, I actually used it uh, – for another Google Hangout earlier tonight, and it um, you know required me to, to have the the video adapter, and you know so it's just it's it's not the computer for our teachers to take the educational lens here. USB C, in my view, is still is a dream. Um, I, that is a great article, and I love you know just all those technical details because I hadn't realized all of those differences between them, and so it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves though because one of the things I pulled up as you were talking were the tech specs for the latest MacBook Pro. So when when Apple came out with this 11-inch MacBook, I kind of, I mean, I don't know, but it seemed like they were kind of testing the waters to see is that what they're going to to stick with. And there was a lot of conjecture. We talked about this on the show, you know, months ago as far as is the MacBook Air going to die and, you know, is Apple just, you know, leaving the old USB behind. Uh, they do have you know, four USB-C ports, two on each side of the MacBook. And I know Ben Wilkoff is in our chat room, and I'm pretty sure he is probably, I know he's a big iPad user. I don't know. He, I, Yeah. Huh. Well, okay. He says he can use an iPad charging brick to charge his MacBook Pro, iPad Pro, and iPhone. Here's the one thing that has been super cool, and it is to that point. I was on the airplane uh, on our fall break flying back home, and I was almost dead on my laptop. I have a uh, 1200 milliamp charger that I, I typically use for my phone. And there's no way that can charge a laptop. Yeah, and I thought, oh, I have a USB to, to USB-C um, converter cable. I wonder if I can charge my laptop. And sure enough, that gave enough juice from that battery to keep my laptop alive. So from a cable compatibility standpoint, that is, that is definitely a, a big win. But I don't think it's ready for prime time in terms of, you know, the majority of users. And, you know, and I think the other piece of this, too, is that um, – that Marco makes this point in the article. Part of the problem here is that at some point this will be standardized just in time for us to have fourth generation stuff, right? And like that's, that's, that's part of the reality of computers, right? Like at some point I'm assuming that most of, or my phone device will also be USB-C. Um, I'm using a, a, a four year old uh, Android phone right now. I, I don't anticipate upgrading anytime soon, but I assume that with the kind of phones I buy that my next phone will be a USB-C port, but then that renders, you know, literally every charger I own, um, except for the two or three USB-C ones I have, um, to be worthless, which means if I want to have the ubiquitous charging um, uh, that I do have in my house right now, I'm going to have to you know, move on from that. Um, and then speaking of Apple for just a second, I've been really surprised that um, Apple has not moved to USB-C on its mobile devices. Um, I thought that was a shoe-in for them. I understand why Apple might want to stick with their lightning cable because of the investment into it, although um, you know, they were kind of USB-C style before USB-C was cool, right? Like the lightning really advanced uh, uh, charging cables uh, uh, very, very aggressively forward as opposed to the market, which was not moving forward as quickly. But you know, that is part of the peril here of these evolving technologies. As Mark Armand points out, uh, at some point, we're going to want a thinner cable and USB style C cables. They're, uh, you know, the end of it are pretty thin and they're reversible, which is, I think, the killer feature on it, right? But uh, the bottom line is, is that that's not a svelte cable compared to where, where compared to the lightning cable, right? Like the end of that, it is very thin. Um, and I'm sure at some point will be even thinner. So interesting to watch the market there and certainly, um, uh, an interesting phenomenon that we're witnessing. 
So I'll pick up on that, talk a little bit about phones. Uh, dropped an article in about the iPhone 10. This is Business Insider from October 27th. Here's how many minutes you had to score a first day iPhone 10. And for the record, we have not made a decision in our family whether to do any upgrades yet. Um, the article mentions that because there's so little difference functionally with, with eight, uh, you know, some, some folks are opting for seven and we're honestly looking at that too to say, Hey, how inexpensively, you know, could we pick up a seven if we need to go ahead and do that? In the United States, um, analyst Gene Munster found first day iPhone X deliveries or iPhone 10 deliveries, uh, were sold out in 17 minutes and were totally gone in 38 minutes. So Apple is still certainly, you know, creating lots and lots of buzz. But the article I am most moved by this, this week, um, is actually the second link in the show notes right now. This is a, also Business Insider from October 29th. Google and Amazon are spearheading a quiet gadget revolution, and it's going to put pressure on Apple most of all. And so key points from this article are that Moore's Law, and people have said this before, and maybe it's going to be wrong. Maybe um, quantum computing or whatever is going to, you know, make make it go on. But this is saying Moore's Law is going to slow. And so, you know, the exponential increase in processing power that we've seen over the past decades you know, which which Apple feeds on and which cell phone companies have to turn things over because your processing power is so much better, you know, phones and, and cameras. It's gonna, it's saying that Apple is going to have a harder time selling on that. And so the, the big change gadgets are going through is their dependency on AI and their dependency on the cloud. And so, you know, Apple's bottom line as far as their profitability really is dependent now on the iPhone and how many of those they turn turn over per quarter and, and per year. And um, and when it comes to Google and Amazon, Google's wanting us to see more ads and Amazon's wanting us to buy more things. The companies are motivated differently. And so the point that's being made in the article is that artificial intelligence, again, we, we, we talk about this and our regulars may be tired of hearing us mention, you know, Google's AI first strategy rather than mobile first. Uh, it, it's a really, a really big deal. One of the, the articles linked in here I, I put in as well, and it says a dormant chip in the Pixel 2 will soon let developers write better apps and, and AI apps. And so evidently with the Pixel 2, there are some issues with burn in and there's some, some hardware issues, but this is a big difference in companies and capabilities and bets as far as where the market is going as a trajectory. I've had several conversations in the last week or so with folks about their phones and just about, you know, how they can almost be self-sufficient with their phone. I mean, their tablet, eh, if they have it, if they don't have it, but, you know, can't imagine not having their phone. And so <laughs> one of the personal things this really makes me consider is whether or not I need to take a look at a Pixel phone, if not now, you know, as as my next device, um, because of of the AI revolution and you know what this is meaning for for capabilities. Um, evidently, the the capabilities of the uh, Google Assistant even today are far outstripping Siri. So, Jason, you are the owner of a Google Home. Are you noticing noticeable? Are you noticing noticeable? Are you noticing changes in its function and its capabilities? And you know, what, what's your advice to me as the longtime iPhone user whose children will probably have heart attacks as teenagers if Dad would, you know, disrupt the the pass down chain for phones? Well, I, I think the transition for me, and I went from an iPhone four to a um. My first Android phone was a Galaxy Note 2, then to an LG G3, then to one of the Amazon Moto phones, and then I went backwards a little bit because I wanted some older functionality that that the Galaxy Note 4 provided, and so I'm using a Galaxy Note 4 now. I think part of it is is that the reason why I still continue to be delighted by Android is because it does allow you a lot more controls to mess with the phone and do interesting things with it, right? I'm pretty sure I could be plenty efficient, plenty um, uh, productive on an iPhone. In fact, I still have an iPad that I utilize because I want to stay steeped in iOS and I, and I want to be able to understand that platform. It's partly so I can support end users in, in, in that uh, platform as well. 
But the bottom line is I'm very happy with my Android phone. But of the two companies, it does appear that Google is doing more with, with artificial intelligence than Apple seems to be doing right now. And part of it's because I think Apple, I wouldn't say they're getting lazy because I think they are doing interesting things with phones. I just think that Apple is not, is, is they're, they're resting on their laurels a bit because they still are the premium phone and they're making extraordinary profits off of that phone. And it's not just because they're selling hardware. And I was going to put this article in today, and then I lost it, and I couldn't find it again. But, uh, you know, you probably know as an end user, uh, Wes, that Google is now the default search engine again in the iPhone. In fact, that involves a... um, uh, It involves a payment from Google to Apple. And that payment uh, represents... It's it's billions of dollars. I don't know where where that number is specifically at, but it's it's in the billions of dollars that Google pays for to Apple, and it's all profit. Like it, it you know, I'm sure it was like three lines of code to change the standard from um, wow. Google to uh, from Bing to Google, and they just collect this money, and it, it's basically costs them nothing to make this profit, and represents a pretty significant percentage of their quarterly profit every quarter um, on that device, right? And I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm almost certain because Apple is a smart company that they have a place somewhere else that we're just not seeing yet. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a maybe it's television. Uh, uh, there, there's a rumor of of an Apple uh, television uh, kind of cable like experience. Yada yada yada. But I just don't feel like the phones are advancing in a way that Android phones are. Um, not from the hardware standpoint, but from the software standpoint. And that's where I think. Yeah, it, th- there's likely some, some AI things in there that, that are coming. How does all this relate to schools? You know, uh, phones have been around for a while. I am part of conversations now a lot more centered around social media hazards and screen time and concerns. And, and we've got pretty – in fact, there's a our, – our middle school uh, director was telling me, or principal was telling me about – a movement that's like, wait till eighth grade. I need to find this out. But evidently there's folks, you know, really trying to, to tell parents, don't just, you know, get your kid that, that phone as quick as they can. You know, there's actual benefits and value in, in waiting. So what, what does the status of the current smartphone market today mean for schools and devices? And how, how does this, does this have an impact? Should this have an impact, Jason? Well, I think that the battle royale for mobile devices in schools is between um, the Chromebook and the iPad. Like, I, I obviously kids are bringing devices in our classrooms. Those are probably uh, probably Android devices based on market numbers, but you're going to see a pretty diverse uh, mix between those two. And because the app stores are largely similar, if you're relying on students to bring a phone in that can run an app, chances are either platform is going to run the app you need. Where I do think schools will be impacted, though, is in the tablet world as people attempt to put or to roll out tablets as an accessible computer for students to utilize in a classroom. Your choices there are the iPad. Um, and, you know, I, I've never been a tech director, but I know enough to know that iPads have been challenging to a lot of tech directors because the implementation and rollout of those is not nearly as clean as the Chromebook. Um, I think it's a different game in 2017 than it was in 2012. So there's lots of third-party options, and Apple seems to be getting their stuff together. Although I will say, if Apple had been smart in 2010 when they released the iPad, if they had put even a little bit of engineering energy into creating management systems for those that were school-friendly and compatible, the iPad, and I, and I honestly believe Apple would be kicking the Chromebook right now, right? If they had got their, their foot was in the door much earlier, right? Um, Google's really struggled in, in, in finding their foot in schools with tablets because every time they've attempted to put an Android tablet into place, it, it hasn't lasted very long. And I, I don't really know how to account for that. I find Android tablets to be quite functional. And when you have one that, that it's a, that's decent hardware, um, and the Android OS, I, I think it's just fine, but they, they haven't caught on for whatever reason. And in fact, um, there was Google Play for Education, which was a play on Google's part to provide a management interface for Apple tablets. And the bottom, I'm sorry, for Android tablets. And the bottom line was they never really took off, like even though they had really wonderful management features. So now the play is not between Android, I'm sorry, not between um 
Android tablets and iPads, it's between Chromebooks and iPads. And the reason why is because the Play Store, which is now available on a handful of of, of Chromebooks, allows you that same experience of pushing out apps. And because most Chromebooks, even the education world being sold 2016 or beyond, are convertibles. They allow for a flip-around experience that gives you a tablet-like experience. Um, I now have a handful of Chromebooks uh, that I utilize from very low end to very high end that have the Android Play Store, uh, or I'm sorry, the Google Play Store uh, for Android apps, and it's a wonderful experience, right? The Android apps with a laptop-like experience, and I keep wanting to lift this Chromebook up that I'm on right now to show it to the camera, and that's impossible. I guess I can show you the keyboard, so there's the... <laughs> Oh, and he shuts his machine down as he's trying to show us the keyboard. So, yes, folks, you saw it here. Um, while Jason is getting reconnected, I will preview the fact that, speaking of Chromebooks, and here he is joining in again, a remarkable demo, the Demo Slam. I can shut down my machine with ease. That was maybe the <laughs> dumbest thing I've ever done. So, and that's and that's. A- that's a competitive uh, field too. The dumbest thing I've ever done. So that was a that was a feature, ladies and gentlemen. That's a was. feature. It was. It shuts <laughs> me up, right? Um, so you know, the bottom line is, is that experience could be competitive there. And with Chromebooks being rolled out so aggressively in schools, I think that's 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 the piece. So um, I I think we're a better world if both OSs are vibrant and 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 being sold. I think the devices are better for it. But I think it's be interesting how this plays out in schools. So two thoughts on that. Mentioning Chromebooks, we are going to be doing a show about the Chromebook, and that will be in part a specific response to Gary Steger's article of a couple weeks ago that was pretty negative about the Chromebooks, to say the least. And I think I'll I'll be writing a post about that in advance and getting some thoughts together um, because I am a real fan of the Chromebook and I think there's all kinds of creativity that can be had with a Chromebook of 2017, you know, certainly compared to an OLPC generation one, which I'll bring to the show because I actually have that in my garage. But the other thing that I want to throw down here, because Ben Wilkoff, I think is, is in, is in the audience. Ben uh, was one of those staying up late, getting his iPhone 10. And uh, what did he say? It's going to be coming in uh, on Friday. So I challenged Ben to convince me that the iPhone 10 is a better upgrade for me than the Google Pixel 2. So care to accept the challenge. Um, it's, it's definitely uh, for, for folks enjoying being on the bleeding edge, you know, it, the feature set that's available on on new devices can be remarkable. Um, I just continue to think about you know the AI side of all that. So perhaps you know it's all still early days. We're we're in the cave caveman cave person uh, days of of AI. So it may yep. not just be that dramatic. All right. Well, let's see. I'd like to. I think. Uh, this uh well let's let's talk some new media stuff and and russia and and facebook and and all of this stuff um i i dropped an article actually above the new media links how americans really feel about facebook apple amazon google twitter and more and this is a verge article from october the 27th and um there's been all kinds of, obviously, you know, discussion about fake news. And I had an interesting talk with my eighth grade before the show. She's writing about the Gilded Age, but we, we were talking about stuff that's happening, you know, in our press with with uh, uh, not just, well, lo- local uh, and, and national. So we are not trusting Facebook today. That's the, the main infographics there. It says four different findings. Number one, Apple is not America's favorite tech company. Number two, America doesn't trust Facebook. Number three, Amazon is the ruthless corporate juggernaut people love. And a third of America wouldn't care if Twitter disappeared. <laughs> you know, interestingly, Twitter probably has its highest profile ever, thanks to our, our president who, who enjoys making foreign policy and whose advisors, I guess, have been incapable of taking the, you know, the device with the Twitter account from his hands. I remember how Barack Obama, you know, was reluctantly giving up, I think, a BlackBerry or, you know, some other kind of phone and, and anyway, social media. So to see trust levels, there's a whole graph on how much people trust their bank versus these other companies. 
Um, you know, at one point, Mark Zuckerberg, when he was doing this nationwide trip, I mean, people were wondering if he was going to be running for president and, you know, what he was going to be doing. Um, so I thought that article in this whole genre of, of the tech companies and what's happened with, with elections and things was, uh, was pretty interesting. And then this one was really interesting too. Um, this is from The Verge, and this is in that section. Russia's social media, and I think you dropped this one in, Jason. Russia's social media meddling could spell the end of online anonymity. Uh, this is from today, November the 1st, in The Verge. And this is absolutely fascinating because amidst everything else that's happening and going on, from Google, Facebook, and Twitter in front of House and Senate subcommittees this week, and um, there's a, a person who, who testified there named Clint Watts. He says he's one of the most respected uh, figures in the nascent field of social media manipulation. <clears throat> and his quote sounds like it's, you know, straight out of a spy novel. Uh, but he's talking about how anonymity is very dangerous in terms of electoral manipulation. And a lot of the, the really dark stuff that we see in social media and, and is because of, tr you know, anonymous trolling. And so that whole quote there, he says, with features like account uh, anonymity, unlimited audience access, low cost technology tools, plausible deniability, social media provides Russia an unprecedented opportunity to execute their dark arts of manipulation and subversion. Today, anonymous sites rife with conspiracy theories such as 4chan and Reddit offer unlimited options for the placement of digital forgeries to drive Kremlin narratives, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's implications for schools in terms of who we trust, right? I mean, we're a Google school. We're trusting Google. Um, I, you know, thankfully, we're, we're able at our school to order from Amazon. In, at my previous district, we were highly discouraged from doing it to the point where they just didn't want us to, to do that. I, I don't know how, how that is shifting um, as far as business offices and things like that with schools. But um, those were those were two notable articles in terms of of trust. And then then also that whole idea of, of, of anonymity and whether that's worth defending, you know, and how that plays into to politics and and all that is uh, pretty interesting stuff. So. Anything you want to glean out of those articles or, or others under that category, Jason? Yeah, I, I, I would definitely encourage you, uh, and again, all the links to our, in our show notes are at edtechsr.com. Look at the articles that um, I think we quote a Verge one, but if not, it's, it's all over uh, the internets today. The the tech media has jumped on top of this. But during the, the, the congressional hearings related to Russia meddling in elections where they fit, uh, focused on social media, looking at, at both the advertisements – and then also the the fake groups that were created by so-called Russian meddlers to influence the election. The thing that's most stunning to me is that, uh, you know, obviously Russia didn't create the uh, discontented discourse in the United States. It's been in existence for a decade or more, um, certainly uh, with the election of Barack Obama in 2008 and the rise of the Tea Party. I do not want to minimize that we've created a lot of our own problems here. But if you look at the ads that were that, that have been attributed to Russian meddlers, what's interesting about it is is that they uh, very cleverly have built memes that would be shareable and um, kind of uh, uh, to, to uh, a bit uh, quote Abraham Lincoln in the reverse, uh, looking at the opposite of the better ab or angels of our nature to the worst of humanity, to the worst of the discontent that exists in our culture, to the worst of politics, and took advantage of that by then stoking those fires, oftentimes picking on, on, on strong beliefs by people, whether they were religious or political or social, and then once drawing you in with a cleverly created meme would then feed you disinformation for the purpose not of, of having you even vote for one candidate or the other, but just to rile up your hate and discontent and your extraordinary dislike of the other side. Uh, there was one of the ads focused, and I can't remember the name of the group, but put this bizarre-looking um, uh, um, meme that, that had uh, a, a caricature of Jesus and Hillary Clinton and said, um, you know, uh, like this if you want Jesus to win, and, like, you know, really breaking America down into just terrible caricatures of ourself, right? But we know that that's how memes work, right? That's that that's social content, that's spreadable content. And 
in a world where, you know, we can't help ourselves. And it goes back to a topic we've covered a lot that these social media systems are built around addiction. They're built around gambling. They're built around the same uh, uh, guttural response we have to politics, right? Um, It is everything we've been talking about to be weary about with these technologies you've gone wild. So um, uh, definitely take a look at those those advertisements that have been mentioned as part of these congressional hearings. And I'll mention another article that I put in at the bottom of that section, and this is from today from The Verge. Apple CEO Tim Cook says social media is being used to manipulate and divide us. And so this is an interview that he did, I guess, tonight with Lester Holt on NBC Nightly News. And he did talk a little bit about the uh, congressional hearings, uh, but he said, quote, I don't believe the big issue are ads from foreign governments. I believe that's like 1% of the issue. The bigger issue is that some of these tools are used to divide people, to manipulate people, to get fake news to people in broad numbers so as to influence their thinking. This, to me, is the number one through 10 issue, and that echoes what you're talking about, Jason, the fact that people are being riled up. We are... uh, uh, perceived to be a very divided nation and we need to look at the ways that these tools are being used and the role that regulation needs to play you know and of course when we talk about changing the internet and net neutrality and and privacy and anonymity um these are important you know kind of core principles that have under undergirded the internet since its inception but that article i mentioned a little bit earlier um which was talking about um, Russia's social media meddling could spell the end of online anonymity. You know, if we start talking about you can't be anonymous, the article says that Facebook has already been moving in that direction and they could probably kind of control, you know, tighten down their, um, their verification processes as far as having a user account I don't know. We can get a little dystopian here with, you know, having our, our little badges. And it's kind of weird. Right now, I'm, I, I talked on a, the show for my Geek of the Week a couple weeks ago about this little USB, um, you know, security device where with two-step verification, instead of having my phone text, you know, getting a text message or using the authenticator app, I can, I can put that in, you know. And so here I am you know, plugging in to verify my identity and how soon, I mean, Ben Wilcoff's folks is going to be there on Friday. His iPhone 10 is going to be, you know, facial recognition. He's in, he's going to be in the database. Homeland security is going to be zeroed in saying, all right, we know how to get Wilcoff now from all of our, our cameras around the country. No, per- perhaps that's a, a step too far, but anyway, it, it, it moves us to this, these ideas about, do you have to, you need to have a mark and a number in order to do business in the world. And it's pretty interesting because we, I think that hopefully we're going to need to take some action, uh, because of what we've seen happen with the election. My eighth grader was evidently not aware that the Russian involvement in our election by a lot of consensus, you know, may, may have subverted our democracy. So anyway, we were having interesting conversations about that. Hopefully we're going to take some, you know, some action. Cause I've, I've read enough both nonfiction and fiction about intelligence communities. And, you know, I can, I could show you parts of my bookshelf over here of uh, reading that I used to do, especially in college and afterwards. And, and the ways in which, you know, foreign governments, it's, and we do too, like we've played these games in foreign countries, you know, all over the place. Look, look at some of the Bernie Sanders speeches that he gave and that were on his channel taught in, you know, some of his awareness about <clears throat> Mohammed Mossadegh and 47 in Iran and, you know, different coups and things like that, that we've done. So, Anyway, it's being done at a much broader level with social media tools, you know, created and made right here in the U.S. of A. in in Silicon Valley. And I guess one of my thoughts might be that we need to we need to be taking a look at how we're discussing these things in school. Right. I mean, we 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 have fake news as a as a common term that people are are kicking around. But I, I think. A lot of our curriculum, you know, it may may be classically tied and hopefully we're helping kids learn to be critical thinkers. But there's some really, really important stuff to grapple with here. Like, well, in fact, there's an article um, that talks about the four questions posed to the. um, uh, Let's see if I can find it. Well, I'll pass the mic to you and I'll, I'll find this other article and comment on it. 
Sure. Uh, the other thing I would also point out is that um, uh, it, it, we, we, we approached this last week a little bit, and I think it's something that uh, I'm hoping inspires conversations in schools, but it feels like 15 years ago we were having a lot of really great conversations and curriculum discussions about media literacy. And I, I, I do spend a fair bit amount of time in schools, and, and there's an endless amount of things we should be focusing on in schools. So don't get me wrong, that I'm sure that that that, that instruction has been replaced by something, you know, uh, you know, less valuable. But the bottom line is, is that good old-fashioned media literacy instruction could go a long way to do some important work here in regards to helping students figure out ways to engage with these materials. The fear I have, however, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot more lately, um, there was an article you posted a couple weeks ago, Wes, that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, but there's some rumors going around that Facebook will start charging news sources to publish news on Facebook. And the reason why that sparked my memory now is that I do think the problem with Facebook in regards to using it as a news source, and this is also true of Twitter, and maybe you can even, even argue it as part of the Internet's problem, is that everyone does get equal time in your news feed, right? Um, if you follow a reputable news source and you follow one of these, um, you know, kind of fake uh, uh, astroturf uh, uh, groups, right, that is, is, is advocating on behalf of a view, but it's really just trying to push you memes in order to get you to think one way or the other. If you, if you've liked each three times, for example, you're going to see those roughly equally in your Facebook feed and they all appear to be roughly equal, right? And that's, uh, especially when you're talking about a student, maybe a younger student, maybe someone that doesn't have the, the discernibility that others do, that's a real problem. And I think we are getting to a point where, um, you know, we have to think carefully and critically about this. And, you know, I don't know how you teach that. Um, I don't know uh, at you, how you, you build that skill set, but we've introduced that into our culture. So now we got to do something about it. And, and by the way, that was one of the attitudes that several members of Congress brought to the hearings today. Listen, Facebook, listen, Twitter. Uh, you've invented these technologies. They are ubiquitous within our culture. No one's going to take that away from you. But if you can't figure out a way to help, um, you know, at least limit the open access to people that are, are, are up to no good, we will step in and do it for you, right? It was the overt threat of regulation. And, um, you know, I don't like regulating speech. I think it's dangerous. Uh, I think it, it sets dangerous precedents in our culture. But, 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 uh, golly, I just said the word gully. Golly, we got to do something about this. So I did find the article. It wasn't in there, uh, and I dropped it in. It's from Medium, and it's uh, the channel by the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, catalyzing a global network of digital forensic researchers. And the article is titled, Four Questions for Twitter, Facebook, Google, and Everyone Else, Hearings for How We Can Cure Social Media Without Killing Them. And so I think this was set up either by folks that are, you know, I think they're lobbyists or think tank or whatever, but to influence the congressional uh, questions that were being posed to Twitter, Facebook, and Google, interestingly, on Halloween. And so here are the questions. Number one, what is your platform designed to do? Question two, what is the limit of anonymity on social media? Question three, do you have a right to be forgotten? And, of course, we've heard a lot about that from Europe. And I think Europe has really led the United States with this in perhaps being more proactive, looking at, regu at, at needed regulation instead of just, uh, you know, a complete laissez-faire approach to uh, what Internet companies are doing. And then the very last question, can the committee commit to collective action? Uh, and the first Sentence there says, in many ways, the threat of Russia's influence operations via social media are a forcing function for undressed governance challenges growing like weeds in a rapidly evolving information environment. These are great debate topics, right? Like this would be awesome if you're going to, you know, have some kind of uh, parliamentary debate or, you know, something where people are going to maybe not have to, you know, do a, a summer's worth of uh, intensive research and case writing to be able to debate issues. Uh, I may actually talk to our uh, our debate coach about that, but I I think that these these kinds of issues have been thrust into the mainstream. Um, 
because of the election, because of what's going on with our, with our president and, and with our, with our nation. And we, we need to find ways to help students thoughtfully grapple with them because while, you know, Congress may take some action, I mean, these issues like privacy, online anonymity, um, you know, to what degree should, uh, advertising be regulated and whether that's political advertising or, or other kinds of, of advertising, these are big issues and, you know, they're not going to be resolved, uh, anytime, anytime soon. So I would, I would say ways to let students grapple with these would be great, whether that's a writing prompt, whether that's, you know, some kind of, of class discussion, you know, relating to current events. Um, it'd be interesting to see. Newsomatic is a is a current events app and and website for kids that my wife uses and has used for a while, and I I don't have it. Maybe I'll get it for a geek of the week coming up. There's another website that one of our uh, our sixth grade uh, social studies teachers uses. So anyway, definitely talking about current events as a way to bring this in, and I think these are hugely important things to wrestle with for us as citizens and uh, and taxpayers, <clears throat> and then also as educators as we have students. What, you know, hopefully engaged, engaged in what's going on in the world and what we should be, you know, advocating and, and recommending because, you know, legislative bodies behind, right? They're never going to be ahead of the curve when it comes to technology and technology policy. But, you know, it, it seems like we're going to be having something come out of these hearings because of the gravity and scale of, of what has transpired in the last year with electoral politics. Well, Wes, I think I'm going to take us out of the realm of politics. Um, I found a fascinating article a couple of days ago from Android Authority uh, that notes that Samsung has created some proof-of-concept projects that turn 40 Galaxy S5 S5 cell phones into a Bitcoin mining rig. And this is not a story about Bitcoin. This is a story about Samsung's really interesting movement to essentially release open source software to unlock old devices. So that means taking the uh, necessity of having their Android software off of there and then allowing old tablets and old phones to turn into devices that could be useful um, in Internet of Things um, projects and then turning old devices into new things that do new stuff. And their proof of concepts included an old Galaxy tablet that they turned into an Ubuntu Linux tablet and a old phone they turned into a fish tank monitoring system. And I thought this was the best news because one of the problems we have right now is that we keep throwing away old devices, right? A lot of power users will turn over phones every year and a half, every two years, every two and a half years, um, uh, those devices oftentimes aren't that useful because they don't get security updates anymore or the software itself is dated, which means you can't install apps on them that are in any way modern. But if Samsung is giving away software that unlocks those devices and allows you to install Ubuntu or other Linux-based things or a Raspberry Pi-like operating system, those could turn into extraordinarily interesting Internet of Things devices. And it reminded me, um, uh, actually reminds me right now, and I, I need to th uh, figure out this link and throw it in, but there are some nonprofits that are working on um, putting in listening devices in the Amazon rainforest for people that are coming in. And I think they're, I can't remember if they're poachers or, or what, what the situation is, but um, they've, they've taken old devices and solar-powered uh, solar power powered them and then have them sending off um, information, listening device information to help stop people from doing illegal things in forests, right? Imagine the millions of phones that we essentially throw away by throwing them into a drawer until they finally become e-waste that we could give to schools, put into a maker lab and do really cool things with them because they are essentially computers that are powered modestly with batteries. So I thought very interesting thing, and man, would it be cool to take, you know, dirt cheap, under $50, five-year-old cell phones, pull the operating system off of there, and do something else with the platform. That's awesome. What a makerspace project, right? What yeah. a great, you know, hack, remix, and, and repurpose 
and and it is we're we want to do Google expeditions with younger students who don't have their own phones, and so yep. we've been collecting phones recently. I say we are lower division elementary computer teacher has been collecting and I'm just assisting in helping <clears throat> set up the, the phones with our mobile device management and, you know, updating the software and putting Google expeditions on it and found that the iPhone four, we learned this with two step as well, will not run iOS eight, which is evidently requ- it is required for the Google app and even to do two step verification. So you really do not. And, and Ben, check me on this and Peggy and anybody else if I'm wrong, but it appears that you can't do two-step verification with Google with an iPhone 4. And in order to run iOS, in order to run Google Expeditions, you have to run iOS 8. So anyway, we've got some iPhone 4s that have been donated, and it's like, what do we do with these? Well, Apple would do something, you know, like Samsung in this case and open it up, which is not likely. Uh, I guess you would, you could jailbreak or do something like that, but that's a, that's a pretty awesome article. Yep, I thought so too. Well, Wes, it appears we're getting near the top of the hour. Is there anything else you want to throw in before we geek of the week it? Um, let's see. Um, no, I think we've we've covered covered most of the ones that I I wanted to take a look at. Um, I guess we could just you know, we've got the surveillance and, and state power. Uh, I had thrown this one in a little while back. This was The Verge from October 10th. Google's Home Mini needed a software patch to stop some of them from recording everything. And evidently, I, th- I think reading the article, they had set something on top, which would press the button, which was recording things and, and sending sending that out. So I'd still like to follow up on <clears throat> the... Um, the case about the Amazon Echo and whether, you know, the court, you know, how all that was going to play out as far as the appeal, you know, for the recording. Um, the other article that was under that, uh, just to get this out of the way, was October 21st. Federal court ruling, U.S. government is free to seize your fingerprint to unlock your Apple devices. And this is something that is pretty interesting with U.S. law. I don't know how this works in other countries. But in the United States, if you have a numeric passcode, you cannot be compelled. I mean, I guess they could try at customs, um, but I don't think that they can compel you to disclose that because somehow that is considered protected. But if you have activated, you know, thumbprint recognition or Ben Wilkoff and others with the iPhone 10, you know, the facial recognition, then supposedly that's something that law enforcement can force you to do. Not that, you know, we're all concerned about, that happening to us, but it's these things are are important to follow in terms of what what their limits are as far as government and state power and you know Fifth Amendment rights and, and all that kind of stuff. So I have not bought my Android phone for Egypt yet, Jason, but I I got a really good used device store that I am going to wander into maybe this weekend and see what I can see. So. What is your Geek of the Week for today? Well, this is probably a throwback because I'm sure we've mentioned this tool before. And it was actually uh, the first time I ever saw someone do something interesting with this was U.S. But IFT or I-F-T-T-T is like an Internet of Things operating system. And basically, IFT stands for if this, then that. So in other words, if something happens, something else happens. And there are dozens of ways that I use IFTTT in my life, including um, at my workplace, we've built a very delightful but duct tape and bailing wire data analytics system that sends emails from a learning management system to um, a, a, a Google account. If sniffs those emails out, parses the data into individual parts, and then turns that into data spreadsheets that we utilize both visually and from a spreadsheet standpoint with schools that want up-to-date data uh, for their or about their students. We've even created grading analytics scripts that allow us to see how quickly assignments are graded after they're turned in um, because we wanted a way to visualize that so we could analyze how that process worked. And we really love IFT, but the reason why IFT has meant more to me lately is because IFT plugs into both the Google Home and the the Amazon Echo. Both devices are in my house as part of an experiment that has to do with my doctoral research, and they allow you to do some really cool things. And so right now, if I said, okay, then the G word, and said, add to my shopping list X, 
it would put it onto a to-doist list that my wife and I share with our shopping list. And so what's been interesting, as I mentioned before in the podcast, we have a, an exchange student this year who is an 18-year-old football player. The kid eats like you would not believe. We run out of stuff all the time. And so we've had to, uh, any of the three of us can constantly update our um, um, uh uh, uh, our shopping list by just uh, talking to our Google Home. So the reason why I was reminded of it this week is because Lifehacker released a quite wonderful, um, um, a quite wonderful uh, guide to Ift. And so if you're new to it, um, it's it's pretty great. So highly recommended the Lifehacker article. And Ift is such just a really cool and amazing and and I think mind bending tool that would be useful to I think you as an educator, but also your students, especially if you've got a makerspace that you're utilizing. Absolutely. Ben had shared a few weeks ago or a month ago about, you know, somebody locally that was writing some algorithms to find out about local microbrews and somehow that was being connected with, with if this, then that. And, you know, a, I think it was a Google home, uh, the, you know, when we have the ability to write and create some kind of algorithm that is going to be interacting with our, you know, digital assistants, uh, you know, that's that's something to gravitate to and to help point students to, um, because at that point, students are taking some agency over it. It is interesting to see what you can get it to do and what its capabilities are. But that's that doesn't involve the computational thinking that's involved when, with with coding. So my geek of the week is a, is screen cloud. This is digital signage. We have had a couple of years of using what is touted as free digital signage with digitalsignage.com. I'll be writing a blog post about this in the hopefully not too distant future. <clears throat> but Google um, has Chrome bits, which are little $85 computers, really, just like a Chrome box, except it looks like a large USB drive, except it has HDMI at the end and a single USB port. Putting these Chrome bits out, and I think, actually, I think we might have seven of them out in different places with, with digital signage. We're going to be using it for our, our G Camp OKC this this coming Saturday on November fourth, and it's very cool the way that it integrates with Google Slides with YouTube. Um, you can actually use different kinds of devices with Screen Cloud, like an Amazon Fire Stick or even a Windows PC if you got you know real, some something small and and whatever. But we've been using them with the Chrome bits, and uh, it does cost educationally fifteen dollars per screen per month um, compared to what we were doing before. We paid like $165 for these Android devices, but we couldn't update them beyond Android 4.4. I, I don't know if they got hacked, but we were having trouble with them pulling down all this data that was confusing. Like, why are, why are they doing this? And anyway, Screen Cloud has been awesome. It is a revelation. Um, I'm really, I'm really loving it. And, uh, the, the, the way the responsiveness of being able to change a slide, you know, doing a multi-layout thing, which we haven't done a whole lot with, but like we can do weather at the bottom and you can have an Instagram feed or regular RSS feed. Uh, we're going to be using it to share Google slides at our Google event that we're going to have our conference. And then also have some things timed. So like at 11 o'clock when it's time to go to the cafeteria, you know, our three digital signs that we have are going to immediately say, you know, please head to, you know, Calvert for the 11 o'clock session, et cetera. So, Love that. Jason, where can people find you online to just continue the good education that you provide so generously throughout the week? Well, um, I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach, and I blog fairly frequently at the Tech Savvy Teacher blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog.ncc.org, where we announced a couple weeks ago that Dan Rather will be joining us to keynote our conference in February. So we're really excited to work with Mr. Rather and to have him talk a little bit about his work um, on topics we talk a lot about, which is where journalism is going and how students can better analyze the extraordinary buffet of information around them to try to make sense of this world. So that's February um, in Seattle, the 14th to the 16th is the NCC conference, and more about that at www.ncc.org. What about you, Wes? So I'm W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. Even though I wrote a recent post of an ode to RSS and daily blogging, I am not back into a daily blogging mode, but I am writing a little bit more and <clears throat> did write a post this uh, recent weekend. We had a really exciting Minecraft Halloween challenge that was, you know, 
very, very uh, popular with, with the kids and, and we had waiting lists to get on it. And we're going to do something else for Christmas. I do also though want to mention the uh, hashtag G camp OKC. Uh, we'll be having about 120, maybe 140. We've got about 25 slots that we can still fill. Uh, but uh, educators descending on our campus on Saturday and I'm really looking forward to great presentations. Peggy, I'm going to try to set up uh, a live stream in one of our rooms that we'll kind of, we'll see how that goes. Uh, we'll probably do that with an iPad and uh, hopefully have some, some good Google goodness that will be shared there and want to give a shout out. I think I probably will put up a post about this. Um, a lot of times you have demo slams at, you know, Google events and, and ed camps and things like that. And so we're going to, we're calling this the Google glimpse. So a little quick story um, that, that if you want to share and uh, I'll put out a call if uh, Jason, you want to share a quick little video, Ben, uh, Peggy, anybody else who's listening. Uh, these are just, you know, something quick, but it, it would be cool to have a few video based ones to share and encouraging people to be connected educators. So we are the ed tech situation room generally here on Wednesday nights streaming to you live at 9 PM central, 8 PM mountain and whatever the UTC might be. We love to hear from our uh, from our uh, watchers and listeners, and so please shout out to Jason or I, or you can shout out to us at Twitter at EdTechSR. We'll see that tweet, and we'd love to know where you are and if there's anything in particular you would like to hear us cover on the show. You can find those show notes at edtechsr.com slash links, and the best way to find out What's going on is to just follow us on Twitter, which is EdTechSR. We'll be doing an upcoming show on the Chromebook, but that may still be another week or two away. And we hope until next time, everybody stays savvy and stay safe. Thank you to our chat room for your dialogue, and we'll look forward to hearing Ben's report on the iPhone 10 coming to a YouTube screen near you.